Today's guest might not be your own personal COVID chart person, but if you get pandemic information through social media, I bet you do have a preferred chart person. One year ago, as the pandemic took hold and cases soared and things were scary, it was tough for the average person to understand what was happening in context. Governments at the time, and still today, released data on all sorts of things, usually dumping it into a massive daily or weekly update. I am looking at the daily update, for instance, for Ontario right now. It is 32 pages long, filled with numbers. A glance at British Columbia's downloadable case data gives me a spreadsheet that would choke any printer that tried to spit it out. And never mind how difficult it is to even understand those numbers if you haven't been trained in them, or at least trained in something that can provide those skills. And this is where the COVID chart makers come into the discussion. Dozens of people across the country, everyone from high school science teachers to family doctors to political reporters and even folks who normally graph hockey stats have tried their best to explain these numbers to the rest of us. They offer us an easy way to understand the current trends. They give us something shareable that we might send to our parents or our grandparents who might not be online, but need these things explained. These amateur statisticians also advocate for Canadians. They fight for better data, of course, but they also urge governments to acknowledge worrisome trends and answer questions about them. And they can display those trends in a way that makes no mistake. How and why did they start making charts back last March? How have these social media visuals helped shape the way we understand the spread of COVID? Where do these folks get the time and when will they finally be allowed to close their Excel sheet and rest? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Jennifer Kwan is a family doctor in Ontario who became very early in the pandemic one of the go-to sources for worried Ontarians needing answers. Hello, Dr. Kwan. Hello, Jordan. Thanks for having me on. Of course. I'm going to start with just, do you remember the first chart uh, you made for Twitter about COVID-19? What was it? Yes. So at that time, that was March 2020, and uh, it was a chart of cumulative cases, and the curve was clearly rising exponentially. Um, At that time, that was the only statistic available. There was no um, hospitalizations or ICU emissions or testing available at that time. Why did you do it specifically? What motivated you? Well, I felt like as a family physician, I was getting very concerned about the situation. And I also had relatives in Hong Kong who were, you know, telling us how severe the situation was over there um, to the point where they were running out of supplies like toilet paper and masks. And meanwhile, in Canada, we were just, you know, living our normal lives with 
large conferences and nobody was wearing a mask, but then we were already starting to have a few cases. So I wanted to warn people to be careful um, and to protect themselves and their family and to understand that something was coming. What made you keep doing it? Tell me maybe about the reception you got and, and if you remember, you know, making the decision when the switch flipped and you were like, all right, I guess I'm going to do this every day now. Yeah, I never expected to have to keep doing it every day. I mean, you know, it just becomes a escalating commitment. Uh, I think people started expecting to see the graphs, so I kept doing it every day. And if I was late, people would say, oh, are you going to post today? So I just kept doing it day after day. And, you know, people were saying that it would help them with understanding the situation. It would help um, decision makers for organizations with uh, protecting their um membership. Uh, It would help my colleagues. So it just kind of became my commitment. And this is the one chart uh, that you started with. Maybe describe for our listeners who um, maybe don't follow you because they follow somebody else in their province who is doing uh, very similar stuff, but maybe describe kind of how it evolved and what your daily report looks like now, because it's it's huge. Yeah, so, you know, even though we just started with case numbers, as you know, they're not entirely reliable because that really depends on testing. Um, The more important metrics would be hospitalizations, ICU numbers, and deaths. But those are also lagging indicators because it takes time for someone to um, get infected, get tested, get their result, become a case, and then get sicker to the point of hospitalization and death. So I think all of the metrics are very important including uh, tracking testing, pending testing, test positivity. Um, Now that we have vaccines, of course, the daily vaccinations, um, number of people immunized. uh, Also now the variants of concern are, um, you know, changing every day and that is also being graphed. So I think that we can't just look at one number, but we have to look at the overall numbers, the general trends of the numbers and not just the daily fluctuations. And that helps people to have a better understanding of the situation so that we feel like we have some control over all the changes happening in the last year. How much time does that take you to do every day? So that would take at least an hour every morning to do the graphs, but that doesn't include, uh, for example, responding to people's questions. It doesn't include the information that I have to gather to make sure all the reports are accurate, you know, making sure that any new information is being included. Um, And it doesn't include time for media um, interviews or for um, preparing other COVID-19 related information. So you're using data that's all supplied by the province of Ontario. People in other provinces are using data provided by their provinces. What do you think it says about the way that our governments make this data available that that there's a need for these services for for folks like you to translate it into um, easily consumable graphs that people can understand. Because I I also look at the you know in Ontario here it's ten thirty in the morning when they release the numbers, and, and there's just pages and pages of stuff. And if you're not really devoted to it, you could just get lost. Yeah, the data can be overwhelming and very confusing, and it's not. Uh, just important to have the data available, but also translate it in a way that's 
understandable for the general public, for professionals who may need this information, and to make it, you know, just one thread. You can look at it, see the pertinent statistics of the day. If you wanted more details, there's links to sources and other websites, but sometimes people just want to have an overall picture of the situation. And I think that the government is doing their best in this unprecedented situation in terms of providing the data, but there may still be gaps that people have uh, stepped up to help fill. What kinds of conversations come out of your daily threads? You know, what what are the kinds of questions that, that you get a lot? Or has anything even been raised to you that's, you know, helped make you smarter or that you might have passed on to people you know in public health? I think it's important to listen to feedback. And many people have made various suggestions on my graphs. And I think that it's very useful because everyone has a different perspective of the situation. Uh, so, for example, um, when we are looking at first at like daily cases, now we want to see the you know changes in the daily cases, not just cumulative. So we would add that. Um, if there's you know people are having questions about calculating the test positivity, um, I try and explain that. So it is kind of like a collaboration, not just with other um, people with a medical background or a statistical background, but also members of the general public who have really helpful suggestions. How much in general uh, have you found people's understanding of these kind of health statistics uh, has grown over the past year? It seems like a whole lot of us who never imagined becoming fluent now are. Yeah, I I think that over the past year, many people have learned a lot of things um, about medicine and statistics that we would never even have looked at before. Um, And I think that's great. Like, for example, terms like even epidemiology or like sensitivity and specificity and um, all these numbers and factors that we really don't care about pre-pandemic, now it's just become a daily habit. So I think it's pretty impressive that people are able to adapt and learn um, in the situation. Um, And hopefully that will mean that after the pandemic, people have a higher level of health literacy so that they can kind of understand and take um, or feel empowered over their own health. What are some of the enduring Uh, misconceptions over the past year. You know, we've debunked a bunch of stuff along the way, but I feel like you might have a pretty good sense of the stuff that keeps coming back. Well, I think one thing that keeps coming up is that people think that the uh, cases don't matter because they, well, earlier in the fall, they would see the cases rise and say, well, the hospitalizations and deaths are not rising. But as we have mentioned, it is a lagging indicator and it takes time for people to get sick enough to be hospitalized and unfortunately pass away. So, you know, later on in the next few months, you would see that. But then people would still downplay it, saying that, well, the vast majority of people don't get hospitalized. But there are also many patients who get COVID and develop long-term symptoms that you may have heard of the term long COVID or long haulers, which is very real because I do have patients who have been young and healthy um, and they got COVID and they were not hospitalized. But even months later, we are still trying to figure out why they are having 
lingering symptoms like chest pain, fatigue, shortness of breath, or you know other um, persistent concerns when they were healthy before. So I think a lot of these um, patients are not included in the statistics, and it makes it hard for people to understand that even if you don't die from COVID, it can still be very significant. I'm glad you mentioned your patients because I wanted to ask you about your practice. You know, we talked to people who work in hospitals about how their lives have changed over the past year. How has the life of, of a family doctor changed? Well, we've had to make a lot of adjustments to practice. Um, so we had to convert some of our appointments to virtual care. We're still providing in-person care, but a lot of things that can be managed over the phone, um, for example, simple like results or prescription renewals or more kind of verbal discussions instead of exams we do over the phone um, of course we still do have to see patients in office for example for pregnancies well babies uh, things that require in-person physical exam and then in our office we had to implement many safety protocols um, proper screening PPE um, distancing limiting the number of people in the office so it has been quite a challenge to constantly adapt to the changing um, infection control protocols. But so far, um, my office has been uh, remaining pretty safe, thankfully. But I think it's it's just been a difficult situation for all people who run businesses, right? Similar to a doctor's office, you have to adapt to make sure all your uh, staff and um, patients or customers are safe. What about among your patients? Um, is there a lot more anxiety. Uh, I know we've heard um, that some people are hesitant to go see the doctor um, and that they're putting off normal care that, that they usually wouldn't. Are you seeing that? Yes. Yeah, so a lot of people think that the doctor's office is closed. Uh, sometimes people are scared to go to the office, even if it's open because they're worried about being infected with COVID. And I think people should understand that if you do have a medical concern, um, please do call your doctor's office to just ask and see what they can do for you. And if you're having a medical emergency, to still go to the hospital because doctor's offices and hospitals do have a lot of safety protocols to keep patients safe. And for example, if you're thinking you're having a heart attack, you still need to go to the hospital because that is still potentially deadly even in a pandemic. Are people in your practice um, seeing the end of the line? Are your patients getting impatient, I guess, for this all to be over? Yeah, I think that everyone's just constantly wondering when this is going to be over, when we can go back to living our normal lives and seeing our friends and family. And I, I wish that I had the answer to that question. I think I'm wondering the same thing and nobody really knows for sure, but we do see the light at the end of the tunnel. The vaccines are becoming available. Um, you know, summer is coming. Hopefully if we can get those shots into arms, as soon as possible, then we can be protected. But there is still concerns over rising cases, um, rising um, numbers of variants, and that can still be um, potentially very concerning over the next few weeks to months. So we still have to distance, wash our hands, wear a mask, and stay home if possible, because this is the home stretch and we can't let up right now. 
Have you had any conversations in your practice about, you know, when and how um, you guys will be doing vaccinations? I've seen a lot of lobbying by, you know, family doctors saying like, let, let us do it. We know how to do this. Well, I get a lot of patients asking me when I will be able to give them their vaccination. And I think it's something that they expect because we give them their flu shots and pneumonia shots and shingle shots and tetanus shots, everything. But for um, COVID vaccinations, uh, we have not really received too much information. Um, for example, when they initially announced that the uh, elderly over 80 could contact their family doctors for vaccinations, but we never even had our own information and we didn't have any supply. So we really had nothing to provide and we would get lots of calls, but not be able to give the information. Um, so I think that in some areas now they are doing pilot projects for family clinics to give a limited number of vaccinations, but not in my area. Um, I did sign up to work in the hospital-based vaccination site, so I will be starting there next week, but that won't be for my own patients, unfortunately. It will be whoever has signed up through the local public health unit. Do you feel like we're hitting um, a tipping point at some point soon when enough vaccinations will be available that, you know, the the over 80 and, and depending on which location you're in, you might be able to get it at a pharmacy. And I think like the key to unlocking all this is just having enough supply in enough places, right? Yes, it's supply and it's also distribution. So they are both very important and we need to have at least 100,000 vaccinations per day in Ontario in order to hit the targets set by both the provincial and federal governments. So we are approximately 30 to 40,000 a day right now, but I do have hope that it will increase. But again, that's still not going to be sufficient for at least, you know, a few more months. So we just really have to stay focused and continue to be safe until it is uh, safe when the majority of Canadians are vaccinated. Have you thought about what you'll do um, when all this hopefully uh, comes to a close? I mean, are you going to ever stop making these charts? Presumably, we're going to be tracking COVID cases uh, even at a lower level for years to come, right? How do you know when you've made your last uh, daily thread? Well, I certainly hope it won't be more years. Um, and I do want to stop when I can, given that it does take a lot of time. And I think that hopefully by the summer when, you know, the vast majority of people are vaccinated and we no longer have to be so concerned about our safety and for infection, then I will be able to stop. But I do want to continue to provide um easily understandable and accessible information to the general public to help us understand our bodies, understand our health, and just be able to take control of our own um, medical understanding. So I hope to provide that in the years to come. Dr. Kwan, thank you for helping us out with this. I hope uh, somebody from the province thanks you when this is all over for the work you've done. Well, I think that, you know, I'm not looking for recognition or for thanks. And I just really want to be able to provide this as a service for all Ontarians. Dr. Jennifer Kwan, who you can find every day on Twitter with graphs. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can talk to us anytime via email, thebigstorypodcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. 
And as always, follow this podcast in every podcast player you use. You can listen to us in one and still download us in all the others. Thank you for your time. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.